This is a Rooster Teeth production. November 27th, 2008. XL Airways Germany Flight 888T, an Airbus A320 with seven people on board, is flying over France as part of an acceptance flight. The plane has been leased by one airline, and now that the lease has expired, it has been repainted and is flying on a test flight to make sure everything is okay before returning to service with its owner's airline. Air traffic control has denied the clearances the plane requested for some of its maneuvers, so the pilots are improvising some tests in order to fulfill the requirements. The plane slows down to a dangerous speed, then pitches down toward the sea below. The pilots desperately try to recover the plane, but run out of time, and the plane impacts the ocean, killing all on board. What happened during this run-of-the-mill test flight? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. And people listening. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I didn't see you there. Hello. <laughs> I still oh. I still actually don't see you there. <laughs> uh, we're back. Another episode of Black Box Down. As always, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've got tons of stuff for you to look at. We've got some photos. I know a couple of photos that I'm going to want to post from this episode, but uh, you go check them out there. We'll get we'll get to the meat of that here in a bit. And as always, don't forget, you can directly support this podcast uh, by get, going to blackboxdownpod.com. Get episodes early and ad-free for $2.99 a month. What a deal. Uh, you become a first-class passenger. But you can't yeah. do that at any other airline for <laughs> less than three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even get an alcoholic drink for $2.99. No. On a plane. Or really, just about anywhere. No. Uh, I mean, I guess you could have you could have one. if you're, It's a podcast. You could be listening to one right now. Or, I mean, having one while listening. <laughs> I, I, I know what you meant. <laughs> And, uh, oh yeah, and we've got merch. I'm actually wearing our autopilot shirt right now. I like the shirt. Yeah, I like uh, all the uh, shirts. You can see, you can find that in our, I, I do like them all too. I, I can't choose my mm-hmm. favorite one. Uh, you have one. I saw you wearing one yesterday. I don't have like the, that almost bluish black box down shirt. Like, oh, the like schematic one. Yeah, that was really cool. I only and have soft. the black one. I don't have that one. I need to get that. Uh, anyway, you can check it out in our link tree or go to store.roosterteeth.com for uh, all of our black box down merch. Okay. Anyway, back to the meat of this one. It's a, a bit of a strange one. Uh, XL Airways Germany flight 888T, like I said, was a test flight uh, for an Airbus A320. Is that what the T is for? Presumably. I can't answer that for certain, but I assume that's what they meant with the T. So yeah, it is, it is weird because it, uh, it has that T in it. So like I said, it was a test flight back on November 27th, 2008. I don't know how much you ever really think about this, but airlines don't always own the planes that they fly. Often they're leased from other people. Well, I know that like some like smaller airlines will sometimes like they'll work under different names. You know, it might be like American Airlines, but yeah, you'll book American Airlines will be another airline actually flying you. Is that that's not leasing though, right? That's just like them doing the service. They'll they'll actually like I guess borrow other people's planes. Yeah, uh, it's not necessarily just like airlines uh, lending planes to each other. Sometimes there may be a holding company that just owns planes and their whole business is leasing planes to airlines. Hmm. In this specific case for this flight, Air New Zealand owned this plane and they had leased it to uh, XL Airways uh, Germany. And XL Airways Germany receives the plane from Air New Zealand. You know, they paint their logo on it and everything, and they flew it for a couple of years, and now they're done with the lease, so they mm-hmm. need to return it back to Air New Zealand. So 
They you know put it back in the hangar. They repaint it like an Air New Zealand plane. And both airlines have people on the plane to run tests to make sure everything's okay. Like the plane's being returned in working uh-huh. condition that both airlines are happy with. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. It all checks out to me, but not that I know. <laughs> if you were lending someone a you know multi-million dollar plane, you'd want to make sure yeah. you're getting it back in good shape. Otherwise, they're not getting their security deposit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is the security deposit for a multi-million dollar plane? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the, the contracts for this kind of thing are uh, very complicated. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the price for currently... The price for an A320 can be anywhere from, depending, of course, on the configuration and specifically, anywhere from seventy-four to one hundred and ten million dollars. Mm. So that's that's an expensive plane. Yeah, definitely. At least to own <laughs> would take a while. Yeah. Okay. So the plane took off from Perpignan Airport in southern France, um, made an overflight of the French town of Gailac, and was flying back to Perpignan Airport, approaching over the sea. I believe they had wanted initially for this to be like a two and a half hour flight to go through everything. But there was a little bit of contention, a little bit of awkwardness back and forth. The plane took off and then requested air traffic control to clear space around them so they could do the maneuvers they needed. And air traffic control denied them, saying it was too busy. They couldn't give them the amount of space they wanted. And the pilots of this plane are like, what? You know, that's what we requested. We wanted <laughs> that was the flight path we filed. Uh-huh. But whatever, you know, they try to do the best of what they got. And we'll dig more into that uh-huh. in a bit. This specific plane was an Airbus A320, like I said, specifically an A320-232, uh, which was manufactured in 2005. So it was only about three years old at this point. Oh, yeah. That's really young. That plane really should young. be, like, super fit. Right. So what happened, right? Yeah. So the plane first flew June 30th, 2005. Like I said, it was delivered. It was actually delivered to Air New Zealand's low-cost subsidiary, Freedom Air. Mm. Then Star XL German Airlines took delivery of the aircraft on May 25th, 2006. So Air New Zealand had it for about a year, then they you know, leased it out to uh, this German airline. Okay. The aircraft had been overhauled by a French company located at the Perpignan airport prior to its return off lease. At the time of the crash, the plane was at the end of its leasing agreement and was due to be delivered back to Air New Zealand. Like I said, you know, they repainted it and getting ready. They're going through the check to make sure everything's okay before Air New Zealand accepts delivery of it. At the time of the crash, there were seven people on board. Mm-hmm. Two Germans, who were the captain and the first officer, five New Zealanders, it was one pilot, three aircraft engineers, and one member of the Civil Aviation Authority in New Zealand. Presumably, it's like Air New Zealand has their own pilot as well to verify everything, uh-huh. engineers to make sure everything's working fine, and you know, someone from the Civil Aviation Authority making sure the plane is still adheres to have an airworthiness certificate in New Zealand, their yeah. country, right? Yeah. This is complicated. From a legal perspective, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Yeah, just imagine. I, I, I bet trying to take your car to New Zealand is a pain in the butt. I can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> trying to take, you know, a $100 million plane. Um, the captain was 51-year-old Norbert Kappel, who uh, had been with the airline since August 24th, 1987. Uh, he had become an Airbus A320 captain in February 2006. Uh, he had logged a total of 12,709 flight hours, uh, including 7,038 hours on the Airbus A320. The first officer was 58-year-old Theodore Ketzer, who had been with the airline since March 2nd, 1988. He'd been a first officer on the A320 since April 2006. He had 11,660 flight hours, 5,529 of them on the A320. The pilot from New Zealand was 52-year-old Brian Horrell, who had been with Air New Zealand since September 1986. Uh, He'd been an A320 captain since 
Uh, September 2004 had 15,211 flight hours, including 2,078 hours on the A320. And he was actually seated in the cockpit jump seat at the time of the accident. And uh, he did not speak or understand German. So he was probably just uh, there to watch the plane. But the people actually flying, though, they both spoke the same language. Yeah, they were both German. The Air New yeah. Zealand okay. captain was just monitoring for the plane. And okay. presumably, since these are all you know uh, professional pilots uh, at mm-hmm. big air carriers, the Germans probably speak some aviation English. Mm, okay. And the three aircraft engineers were 37-year-old Murray White, 49-year-old Michael Giles, and 35-year-old Noel Marsh. And the member of the Civil Aviation Authority was 58-year-old Jeremy Cook. Like I said, the aircraft departed from Perpignan Airport at 2.44 p.m. November 27th. The overflight was reported as mostly normal. Okay. But then, like I said, this is around the time when they, you know, requesting clearance to do some maneuvers. Like they want to bank the plane, do some, you know, some like 360 degree turns in each direction. And I believe what the specific maneuver they wanted to do was do like a 33 degree bank angle turn, then a 45 degree bank angle turn, make Mm -hmm. sure the plane can hold it. And that, you know, it returns back to wings level flight uh, on its own, you know, pretty standard stuff. It's not like they're doing acrobatics or anything crazy, just like normal maneuvers. But like I said, the airspace was busy. They couldn't be cleared that space. So they start improvising like, well, you know, let's, you know, we'll do some of these tests out of order. Let's see what we can do to accomplish what we need to do as best as we can. Okay. How how are they going to improvise tests that I I don't know? They're just going to do as many as they can and try to just check off as much as get as much done as they can with the clearance that they've been provided. And at 3.33, they start back towards Perpignan Airport. But at 3.46 p.m. during its final approach, the plane just disappears off of radar screens. Oh, were they coming back like to land? To land. Yeah, they were like, okay. We can't do any more tests. Right. They're like, well, we'll just do what we can real quick and then just go back and land. We'll figure out whatever we need to do to, to make this right. And the aircraft ends up crashing into the Mediterranean Sea 4.3 miles off the coast of southern France and all seven people on board were killed. So like you said, this is a new plane. Mm-hmm. It just came out of service. You know, all of the pilots are very established pilots. It's not like there's yeah. a new guy flying the plane or anything. And you would think that this would be one of the safest flights possible. Yeah. Why isn't it? <laughs> yeah. What happened? So France's Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety, uh, also known as the BEA, launched an investigation of the crash. Okay. A technical investigator arrived at the Perpignan airport the evening of the crash and four others arrived the following morning. And of course, there were representatives from Germany, New Zealand, the United States, you know, it's kind of a high-profile incident or accident. Wait, why, is it, why are U.S. reps there? That's a good question. I don't know, honestly, why the U.S. people were there. <laughs> you know, it did not involve a U.S. airline. The plane yeah. was an Airbus. It's not a U.S. manufactured plane. Uh, it could be that some of the investigators may be just wanted them along for their Like a third party? Like- yeah, that, that's a good point. Like kind of an intermediary between mm-hmm. Germany and New Zealand, you know, to help decide what happened or yeah. have an unbiased opinion. And during the course of the investigation, the working groups were set up in the following areas. Sea searches, obviously they need to find parts of the plane. Operations, maintenance documentation, flight recorders, systems, other miscellaneous data, witness testimony, human factors, and angle of attack sensors. So kind of all over the place. They don't know what caused it. So just kind of a scattershot. Like these are all the things we're going to start looking at. They'll see if they find clues and then start, you know, drilling down into that. Luckily, the cockpit voice recorder was quickly found and recovered. And on November 30th, divers recovered the second flight recorder, which is the flight data recorder. Okay. In late December, French investigators attempted to retrieve data from the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder, but they found that the data was unreadable. What? Yeah. However, don't, don't worry. They sent it off to the manufacturer. 
They sent uh-huh. it to uh, Honeywell Aerospace, and they were able to retrieve data from the recorders. Okay. So, and that hey, that can happen, you know, where in the process of the crash, the black boxes get damaged, and it's like plugging a hard drive in your computer, and like it won't mount, right? Yeah. You're like, oh no, my drive's broken. I got to send it to someone to fix it. Except, you know, <laughs> uh, they just send it back to the manufacturer, and the manufacturer, you know, extracts the data as need be. Yeah, that's expensive too. If you've ever done that, it's super expensive. It's cheaper to back up your data, cheaper and more convenient to back up your data. So analysis of the data led them to an interim finding that they began working with, which was that the crew lost control of the aircraft, which I I guess makes sense, right? Yeah. Like I said, the crew was not granted the needed airspace to do their acceptance checklist, but they chose to conduct a number of the tests as they flew back to base. They're like, "Eh, you know, we'll just knock out what we can on the way back. One of the tests that the crew unofficially fit into their flight was a test of low speed flight which they attempted after dropping to a low altitude. Normally, they would do this test at 10,000 feet. However, they were already descending. They were at 3,000 feet, and they decided to do this test. Oh, they're trying. Mm, that's it. Yeah, you need, if something goes wrong, you need altitude yeah. to recover. It's like, you can trade altitude for airspeed. You can trade airspeed for altitude. But when you're, when you're low and slow, you're in a bad position. And that's kind of what was happening. Low speed flight, low altitude, not much room to recover. Mm-hmm. Landing gear was extended at 3.44 p.m. and the speed dropped from 136 to 99 knots in 35 seconds. And that is incredibly slow for an airliner, for an A320. With full flaps on an A320, uh, you know, of course, all of this depends on different configurations and wind. It depends on a lot of factors. Mm-hmm. But you could expect for an A320 typically to stall with full flaps around 120 knots. And they were at 99? Yeah, they went from 136 to 99. That was intentional? They intentionally went to 99. They wanted some slow flight. I, I don't know if they intended to get all the way down to 99 or if they didn't realize it, but that's way too slow. And of course, I just I want to reiterate, it's not that you stall at a specific speed. It's a disruption of the airflow over the wing and your wing reaches a critical angle where it can no longer generate lift. It's easiest to think about it in terms of speed, but it's not necessarily mm-hmm. like a hard... In fact, it's not like they hit 120 and then instantly stop. Yeah, it's not like a one to two kind of thing. It's like... Yeah, so it's like it's possible you could putz around under your stall speed for a little while if you're really on top of it, but you really shouldn't be doing that. At 99, that's really way too slow. And as you would expect, the stall warning sounded four times (laughs) during violent maneuvering to regain control. By 346, the warning had been silenced as the aircraft regained speed in a rapid descent... But six seconds later, they were at 263 knots, but they were only at 340 feet elevation, and they were at 14 degrees nose down. Wait, what elevation? 340 feet. 340 feet? Yeah, they were, and 14 degrees nose down. So they were pretty much, you could assume, nose diving. Oh, uh, my God. At this point. And a second later, they crashed into the water. So typically, you know, when you stall, you know, you lose lift. You push down. Yeah, it pushed down. Regain speed, which obviously they did. They got to 263 knots, but... They didn't have enough altitude. Enough time to pull back up. Right. And straighten out before they hit. Mm-hmm. What were they saying during all this? Oh, good question, huh? We'll, we'll <laughs> get to that later. In September of 2010, the BEA published its final report on the accident. And one of the contributing causes was, was actually incorrect maintenance procedures. Oh. Which allowed water to enter the angle of attack sensors. And we're going to dig into that right now because I think this is actually really interesting. So, like I said, the flight took place following 
some light maintenance and repainting in preparation for the plane's transfer from XL Airways Germany back to Air New Zealand. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they actually looked into initially was the painting process itself. Because you like if you think about painting a car. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with getting a car painted, but mm-hmm. one of the things you you know that has to be done when you paint a car is you cover up the headlights with tape or paper or something so that they don't get paint on them so they still work. Similarly, on a plane, there's parts on the plane outside that you need to cover up so that they don't become clogged with paint. And I'm sure if I say them, it'll make sense to you. Like, for example, the pitot tubes. Yeah. Those need to be covered because if they get paint jammed in them, then you won't have your proper airspeed. There's sensors that... <laughs> so Right, yeah. Angle of attack sensor. Those need to be covered. They get sprayed with paint. They might become sticky and they might not move the way they're supposed to into the wind. So, you know, that's one of the things that they really start looking into at first. Like, obviously, like I said, the plane was just painted. Uh, so, you know, they go through, they investigate all of the painting procedures to make sure everything was, all the sensors were covered appropriately and that the mm-hmm. steps were followed. And they find that it was. You know, the, the painting, I think, actually had taken a little longer than expected. They had run a little behind schedule. So in order to uh, kind of speed things up, normally when they clean the, the plane after painting it, normally the way that they do this, is actually, it sounds incredibly tedious. They get workers with dry cloths to go around and wipe the entire plane down. Oh my God, yeah. Sounds like a lot of work, right? But like I said, the painting had actually run long. Uh-huh. So they had to try to save some time. So to try to save time, they rinsed it with water. Wait, they just rinsed the plane with water? Yeah, which, I mean, doesn't sound that bad, right? Uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. just spray it down. But what they did was they essentially, the equivalent you could think of, they basically like plugged a hose into like a fire hydrant and like that kind of like high pressure hose the entire thing down. When they did this, they left the angle of attack sensors unprotected. And as specified in the structure repair manual by Airbus, fitting a protection device on angle of attack sensors before this task is mandatory. So what happened was they hosed everything down with like a really high pressure hose. Mm-hmm. Uh, water penetrated inside the angle of attack sensor and managed, because normally, you know, when they fly through, you know, these planes fly through rain and wet conditions all the time. But this water was so high pressure and so directed straight onto the sensor. Yeah. It was able to go like deep into the sensor where normally rain wouldn't be able to access. It got like really deep in there where they couldn't see. Then when they got up to a higher altitude where it's colder, all of that water froze. <gasps> Oh, right. Which then rendered the angle of attack sensors inoperative because normally they move with the wind and that's how the plane knows what its angle of attack is. They froze in flight and they weren't moving. So the plane computer didn't know what the angle of attack was. And where are they located? Typically, you'll see them out by the cockpit on the sides of the plane. Okay. And they're facing like out. They're not like, are they holes? Like they're holes that... They look kind of similar to pitot tubes. They're like little... Uh, you could think of them like weather vanes. You know how weather vanes get pushed by the wind? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like that. They, they sit... They're like pieces of metal that sit out, sticking out from the plane. And when the wind hits them, it pushes them up. That way, the plane knows what direction the wind's coming from. Okay. I just looked up. Are they little like wings sticking kinda. out? Kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see that. Like little wing-shaped pieces of metal. Yeah. And so, wait, where did the water get in? Like, way up inside of it? So, that whole sensor is kind of cylindrical and fits into the body of the plane. Uh-huh. It got in, like, to that entire cylinder housing. Can we, can we post a picture of that because of what it looks like? Chris, that is exactly ah! one of the things I was going to post on our social <laughs> media for this episode. So, you can see uh, exactly what we're talking about. You'll check it out. You'll see the angle of attack sensor. And I'll, I'll do my best to see if... I don't know. 
I think the report had some images of it. I'll go back to the report again and see if I can pull some images out of there. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the whole point of this thing is like a weather vane. As the wind hits it, it's supposed to move. Mm -hmm. But when water got in and froze it, it couldn't move freely anymore. Mm. Similarly, if you remember back when we talked about the 737 MAX, it was also a problem with the angle of attack sensor that was affecting data being fed to the MCAS in that plane. You should go listen to that episode if you want to hear more about angle of attack sensors. Uh, that, was, that was a whole other thing. But angle of attack sensors have come up in the past. Yeah. So what happened was the report ends up saying the primary cause of this accident was that the crew attempted an improvised test of the angle of attack warning system, not knowing the system wasn't oh. working because the sensors were frozen. Yeah. And so they didn't... Oh, no. I'm just... Right, because we've talked about this before, you know, specifically with Airbus planes, they have what, you know, like normal law and alternate law. Mm -hmm. Like when everything's working and all the sensors are fine, normal law protections won't allow you to pitch too far up and stall yeah. the plane. They won't allow you to roll too violently. Like they keep the plane very stabilized. When, the, when these sensors fail, then normal law protections no longer apply, which is probably why they got down to 99 knots. Yeah. They were probably thinking, oh, the plane won't let us stall. You know, we're, we're protected. But in reality, those protections were not working because the angle of attack sensor was not feeding data. And it didn't like that their sensors weren't working? Or did so, this sensor not know that it wasn't working because it was frozen? Like, So what happens is, that's, a, that's an excellent question, Chris. So what happens is the computer knows it's getting bad data okay. because it, it's receiving data from the angle of attack sensors and it's receiving data from other sensors and it knows like oh when the the numbers aren't adding up it yeah. knows that the numbers aren't the same but the computer doesn't know which one's right and which one's wrong mm. it can't tell you what's wrong it just knows something's wrong and on the primary flight display above their attitude indicator there was a warning that appeared in yellow letters and uh, i can't remember exactly what it said off the top of my head i think it's something like man stab trim <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh it's it's letting them know to manually adjust their stabilizer trim okay because <laughs> the stabilizer trim would normally be automatically adjusted by these protections but the protections aren't working so the computer's telling them hey you need to manually adjust your stabilizer trim so it's not saying oh your sensors aren't working it's just saying hey it's not saying what's wrong it's saying what they need to do right and pilots should know oh that if that warning is coming up, that means it's not getting good data. It's not saying it's receiving bad data. It's telling them what to do. And then you should know, oh, if I'm having to do this, that means the computer's not receiving good data. Because again, this should be an automated process. And we've talked about stabilizer trim too. We talked about that also, again, in the 737 MAX episode. It's like those little, they look like records next to the pilot's legs where they can like spin them mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. adjust the stabilizer trim, yeah. which is like, a, um, it helps them so they don't have to be pulling back all the time or pushing forward on the stick all the time if they want to you know, adjust their uh, angle of attack. You know, it's uh, the start of fall. Uh, the weather's uh, getting a little cooler. Maybe you want to spend a little more time outside. What better way than riding a bike? I've definitely been <laughs> using my uh, electric e-bike much more lately now that it's not quite as hot outside. And guess what? Electric e-bikes end of season sale is the time to get a great price on an e-bike that can help you, you know, make the most of the good weather, just like I'm doing. With work from home becoming kind of a norm, we're spending more time indoors and in the same few spaces. Uh, now, perfect time to get outside, explore while the weather's still good. Electric e-bikes offers next level features at a price that's surprisingly easy on your wallet. All their e-bikes ship free, fully assembled. There's nothing stopping you from getting your adventure on. Right now, during electric e-bikes end of season sale, you can save up to $50 on their flagship XP 2.0 series e-bike. I absolutely love my electric e-bike. I try to find 
every excuse possible to ride it, whether it's to uh, grocery stores, uh, convenience stores, restaurants, you name it. And honestly, sometimes it's faster for me to take my e-bike than to take my car. I don't know about where you live. Parking is a nightmare here in Austin. Having to drive to a place and find a spot to park my car, it takes a while. Uh, when I take my uh, e-bike, I can just basically go right up to the door and just lock my uh, bike to the uh, to the bike rack right by the door and go in. That's it. It's super fast, super quick. I love it. Electric e-bikes offer premium features at a fair price with up to $50 off during the end of season sale. This is the best bang for your buck in the market, hands down. Your e-bike, your way. Customizable add-ons and adjustable features let you tailor the ride to your style, plus variable pedal assist throttle, altering tires, foldable design. No e-bike does more at this price. Whether you're exploring the great outdoors, a new city, or your neighborhood, enjoy all the flexibility of a bike with the power and range of a motor vehicle without the carbon footprint of a car. Cover up to 45 miles on a single charge. Reach up to 28 miles per hour with the 850-watt peak motor. Electric e-bikes, wider handlebars allow a comfortable riding position, plus upgraded seating, baskets, racks, other accessories make it easy to build your dream ride. Take advantage of electric e-bikes end-of-season sale now. Get your adventure on. Go to electricebikes.com. Save up to $50 on a 2.0 e-bike purchased during their end-of-season sale. Hurry, because this sale ends October 23rd. Again, that's electric, which is L-E-C-T-R-I-C, ebikes.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. You know me, I'm an introvert. I try to do as much online shopping as possible. Like every day, if I need something, I'm going to try to get it online. Uh, and, you know, I, I like you, I've been uh, taunted by that promo code field at checkout. Uh, however, thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Imagine, you know, you're shopping one of your favorite sites. Uh, when you check out, the Honey button appears. All you have to do is click apply coupons. Just wait a couple seconds. Honey searches for coupons it can find. And if it finds a working coupon, you just sit back and watch as the prices drop. There's so many things I've bought online that Honey saves me money for without even having to think about it. It's just, it's like autopilot for saving money. I've bought clothes. I've bought sunglasses, accessories, you name it. I think the most recent thing, I bought some sunglasses online. It was like, I didn't even think about it. There was a 35% off coupon, uh, tons of money. It's great. Uh, it's super easy to use. Honey doesn't just work on desktop. It works on your uh, iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone. Save on the go. Uh, if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. By getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. Uh, never recommend something I don't use. So go to get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by Masterclass. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. You can learn recipes from Roy Choi or learn about space from Chris Hadfield. Did you know he's actually been to space? How often can you learn about space from someone who's been there? Uh, with over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Well, maybe not going to space, but you can learn about it. It's great. I've really enjoyed scrolling through and seeing how many different people you can learn from, people who are uh, at the tops of their fields. Specifically, I, I mentioned Roy Choi and Chris Hadfield because uh, I, I watched those. I experienced all of those here just the other day. It's funny because I actually went to... Uh, one of Roy Choi's restaurants and uh, like I saw him actually working there and then like the next day I was looking at Masterclass like oh there's a Masterclass by Roy Choi here uh, really interesting to hear him talk about uh, recipes and mother sauces plus I just like space so of course I'm gonna listen to Chris Hadfield talk about space and the great thing is you don't have all the time to uh, take the entire class at once you can always pause it come back to it resume it later so um, if you just got a couple minutes right now take in what you can then come back and finish it later 
So I think you should go check it out. Get unlimited access to every class. Uh, and as a Black Box Down listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash blackboxdown now. That's masterclass.com slash blackboxdown for 15% off Masterclass. If you use that you know, code, you may know that we sent you. And uh, it, it really helps us out. And it helps you out too, because you'll be learning. So like I said, the computers were receiving conflicting information from the three angle of attack sensors. The aircraft computer system's programming logic had designed to reject one sensor value if it deviated significantly from the other two sensor values. So in this specific case, the programming logic led to the rejection of the correct value from the one operative angle of attack sensor and the acceptance of the two consistent but wrong values from the two inoperative sensors. So you see, it's like when someone codes the system, Uh you think, oh, well, if there's three and one is wrong, that's obviously the bad one. Use the two that could agree with each other. Mm. But in this case, the two that agreed with each other were, both were broken wrong. in the same oh way God. and both wrong. So what happened is this resulted in the system stall protection functions responding incorrectly to the stall, making the situation worse instead oh, of better. No. In addition, the pilots also failed to recover from an aerodynamic stall in a manual mode, which the stabilizer uh, had to be set up in an up position to trim the aircraft. That's what I said the stabilizer trim had to be adjusted manually. So they were trying to pull back, but they also needed to give it stabilizer trim nose up as well in order to help them pull back and pull out of the dive. And they didn't know that or they didn't see the the alert. They didn't see that it was not doing it automatically. Right. It's a small alert, Chris. It's <laughs> and it's in yellow letters. You know, I, I could see in the moment, like panicking, uh-huh. not seeing that alert. But did it not come up before? Like, did it come up in the moment or had it been there like the whole time? You know, you know what I mean? It, it came up when the computer registered the disagreement and it happened. Okay. So remember, mm-hmm. all of this started off as water in the angle of attack sensor. They climbed and then 22 minutes after the flight started, that's it when froze. it froze. Right. So it was working initially. Correct. And then exactly 22 minutes in the flight, those two angle of attack sensors froze in the same position. Oh. And it was, I mean, that wasn't a long flight because they right. basically just went up and then went back down. Oh. So you see how, like, this happens. It's, yeah. It's again, like, like many incidents we talk about, it's this crazy set of coincidences. Like, all these things had to line up, going all the way back to the programmers that coded this fly by wire computer system. Yeah. They, that making what I think was probably the correct assumption, yeah. not thinking about this exact scenario, which we're encountering here. That's, oh my God, that's, it's frustrating, but I don't know what, the only thing I could say that they should, is they shouldn't have been doing tests inappropriately, like incorrectly. Right, right. They should have, you know, they needed to be at 10,000 feet whenever the, the plane should have been wiped down with cloth. You know, when they decided to do water instead, they should have covered up the sensors. Yeah, I'm just imagining like an air pressure water, like. You know, and then it just going right into your ear and you're like, ah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you lose your balance. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we'll go through the findings of the report right now. The crew had licenses and qualifications to undertake the flight, but did not have the technical skills, the experience and the methods of a test crew to use this flight program, even if it was not a test flight. Really? I think what they're saying is that while these were accomplished pilots with the A320, uh-huh. they were not specific test pilots. Okay. They probably pulled off like A320 pilots who were available and had them do this flight instead of having designated test pilots who are much more school. Like you would think that a test pilot should really have a much deeper understanding than even a normal pilot of the way all the systems work and what all the obscure warnings mean. Yeah. And like what to do when something fails, like 
because they, right. they basically make things fail. Right. To test to see if everything's working, right? So they've got to be good at recovery. Right. It's like, again, when you take your car to the mechanic, the mechanic doesn't take your word for it. The mechanic takes it out on a test drive to see yeah. what they hear for themselves because they, you know, they, they understand the systems a lot better than we do. Yeah. And I've been driving for decades, Chris. <laughs> The Airbus customer acceptance manual specifies performing the low speed check in landing configuration at flight level 140. So they should have been at 14,000 feet, yeah. according to the, the, the manual. And they were at what, what, 3,000? 3,000. That's <laughs> way just, too low. It's okay to say that that's, that sounds dumb that they did that. Can I say it? I would say it sounds reckless. Reckless. Okay. Yeah, that, it shouldn't happen. The program of checks developed for the leasing of this aircraft did not reproduce in an identical manner the altitude range at which the low-speed check should take place. Again, altitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, the maintenance work was performed or checked in accordance with the approved maintenance program and by qualified personnel. So the maintenance was fine up until the pressure washing. <laughs> uh, the stripping and cleaning procedures for the airplane, which included rinsing, specified protection of the angle of attack sensors. In order to eliminate dust on the fuselage, a rinse with fresh water was performed on November 24th, 2008 without following the rinsing task procedure in the airplane cleaning procedure and notably without any protection for the angle of attack sensors. It's crazy to me that these planes are so complicated. They've even got a manual for washing them, right? Can you imagine that? It's like (laughs) there's a checklist for washing this plane. I mean, that makes sense. Right. They're really expensive and they're very sensitive. Yeah. During the rinsing, the angle of attack sensors were not protected. Water penetrated inside angle of attack sensors one and two and remained there until the accident flight three days later. The crew consisted of two XL Airways Germany pilots, an Air New Zealand pilot present in the cockpit, participated in an active manner following the program of checks. Uh, so that I think he was just following along, you know, on mm-hmm, his checklist. Mm-hmm. He's like, yep, yep. The CRNA Southwest controller refused the request for maneuvers by the captain, given that the flight plan that was filed did not include them. I think there was some contention about that one. I think the captain thought that they had filed a flight plan that included Mm -hmm. the maneuvers. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they actually did. I know that in the cockpit voice recorder, you hear him very briefly complain, saying that that's how they filed it. But then he's like, all right, what, you know, he's a professional. He just moves on. Who's a professional? The pilot? They all are. But yeah, in this case, the captain is who I'm talking about. The crew adapted the program of checks in an improvised manner, according to the constraints of the flight plan and the air traffic control service. Angle of attack sensors 1 and 2 were blocked due to frozen water present inside the casing of these sensors. The system surveillance did not warn the crew of this blockage, which was more or less simultaneous and at an identical local angle of attack values. Like I said, they froze at almost the exact time, which makes sense. Yeah. And they froze in pretty much the exact same value. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And again, that's another possibility where this wouldn't have happened if they had frozen in you know more of a different configuration then the computer would have received three different inputs which would be different than receiving two inputs are the same and one that's the same or one that's different and three would have been better because honestly i don't know i don't know how the system would have reacted to that i would assume three would be better because then it would it would probably throw up warnings being like i don't know you you fly the plane yeah that's what i'm saying like three would have been like probably a bigger warning overall that might have alerted them to the bigger problem right right in other episodes we've talked about times when the computer doesn't know what to do like remember we talked about the Adaru that went bad on that one Qantas flight where they don't know like the Adarus were all disagreeing with each other about what the correct data was and that was a big deal you know that starts showing lots of errors Mm -hmm. on the screen for the 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 pilots to deal with 
The application of a jet water onto an airplane without following the recommended procedure can allow penetration of a small quantity of water into the inside of an angle of attack sensor, which is enough when solidified to block the sensor. The angle of attack sensors are not designed to be subjected to jets of fluid such as those encountered during de-icing, washing, and cleaning operations. Again, remember, like we said, they get wet. You fly through rain all the time, just mm-hmm. not direct high-pressure jets like this. Yeah. Also, rain doesn't, like, hit. Rain comes from above, not like, you know. Yeah, but as you're going through it you know, at high speeds, remember, it, it is, mm. you're, you are kind of running into it. Okay, yeah. That's it's true. not like if you're standing still, rain comes from above. But when you're running real fast, you're running into it. Yeah. The check GW message displayed on the MCDU The consequence of the gap between the weights calculated by the FAC on the one hand based on the angle of attack and on the other hand by the FMS based on the takeoff weight and the consumption of fuel was not detected by the crew. Again, these are just like some other warning messages that it kind of started popping up that could have been a precursor to let them know maybe not necessarily what the problem was, but that there was a problem somewhere. Okay. The crew decided without preparation and in particular without a call out of the theoretical minimum speeds indicated in the OFC to undertake the check of the low-speed protections at an altitude of about 4,000 feet. So between three and 4,000, like we said earlier. Mm-hmm. The almost simultaneous blockage of the angle of attack sensors 1 and 2 at identical local angle of attack values rendered the angle of attack protections inoperative in normal law. Again, we talked about this before. Normal law protections were inoperative because of this. Chris, I want to tell you something. What? I've learned a lot about planes doing this podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> I felt like I knew a lot about planes and plane crashes coming into this. I, I have learned a lot in, uh, in looking into this hey, stuff. me too. <laughs> <laughs> the limit speeds corresponding to angle of attack protections displayed on the strip were underestimated and were directly proportional to the computed airspeed due to the blockage of the angle of attack sensors. Uh, again, bad data being fed mm-hmm. into the computer. The crew waited for the triggering of these protections while allowing the speed to fall to that of a stall. So I guess that kind of explains, you asked how they were able to get so low. Mm-hmm. They were just assuming the protections were going to kick in. You know, it's like, oh, the, the, the plane's not going to let this happen. The plane's not going to let this happen. But that's why they're doing the test. Yeah. Oh no, the plane's letting it happen. Well, you're right. And maybe that's why the report says they should have had specific test pilots to know like, hey, we shouldn't be trusting all this stuff because it might be broken. You don't test, like, that defeats the purpose. That, uh. it's, well, it's like you, you think you know what the outcome is, so you just kind of run the test thinking, you know, you already know what the answer is yeah. going to be. You're running the test assuming everything is great. Right, exactly. I mean, which I could see why they might think that because it's like a new plane. Just came out of service. Yeah. That's actually a very dangerous time to be flying a plane is, you know, when it comes right out of maintenance. And they should have been thinking about that because that's when something might have gone wrong. You don't know. How many of these incidents, how many episodes have we covered where the plane just came out of maintenance mm-hmm. and, uh-oh, something was done wrong? It's, it's scary. But again, that's why there's checklists. That's why, like, the procedures need to be followed on the maintenance side and in the, the actual flying side. Uh, The auto trim system gradually moved the horizontal stabilizer to a full nose-up position during the deceleration. The horizontal stabilizer remained in this position until the end of the flight. So again, that's that stabilizer trim. It was pulling nose up. They should have have adjusted it manually on top of using their stick. The triggering of the first stall warning in normal law at an angle of attack close to the theoretical angle of attack triggering the warning and landing configuration indicates that angle of attack sensor 3 was working at the moment. So remember we said there was one giving it good data. It was sensor three, which was being ignored by the computer because it was the only one giving that data. When the stall warning triggered, the captain reacted in accordance with the approach to stall technique. Uh, The flight control law passed to direct due to the loss of normal law operating conditions. The auto trim system 
was thus no longer available. Remember I said, man stab trim. The changes of law that followed did not allow the auto trim system to move from the nose up position. So they should have, mm-hmm. like the error said, manually been adjusting their trim. Yeah. No crew member reacted to the use man pitch trim uh, message. That's what it was. Not man stab trim. Use man pitch trim. <laughs> man stab pitch sounded like... Like a weird <laughs> newspaper headline. Well, I was like, it's, it's like activating the Winter Soldier yeah. or something. <laughs> Use man pitch yeah. trim. Stab. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> the captain did not react with any input on the trim wheel at any time or to reduce engine thrust in any prolonged manner. Due to the position of the stabilizer at full pitch up and the pitch up moment generated by the engines at maximum thrust, the crew lost control of the airplane during the increase in thrust. So they were pitched up, going slow, tried to increase their throttle because they were going slow, but they were pitched so far up they couldn't really increase their mm. speed and then stalled and didn't have enough altitude to regain control. Yeah. What are they saying? Do you have what they Can we hear what they said? Well, uh, what did they say at the time? I don't remember it, there being anything specifically called out in the report. I couldn't find the cockpit voice recorder or a transcript of it. I don't remember seeing a transcript of it, I should say. So it must not have been very consequential. I, I, I take it back. The only thing I remember was the exchange with the controller when they were a little annoyed that they couldn't get clear to do their test. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I don't remember anything else standing out. Mm. The following factors contributed to the accident. Uh, the decision to carry out the demonstration at a low height. Mm-hmm. We've covered that one. Like you said, reckless. Uh, yeah. The crew members' management. Actually, the you said reckless. I just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with reckless. Yeah. The crew's management during the thrust increase of the strong increase in the longitudinal pitch, the crew not having identified the pitch up stop position of the horizontal stabilizer, nor acted on the trim wheel to correct it, nor reduced engine thrust. So reducing thrust would have maybe nosed them down a little more. Maybe they could have built up speed because that's dangerous, you know, to be slow, pitch up. Mm-hmm. And just gun it. You know, you got to nose down a bit. Like you even said it when you're stalling or you're slow, you nose down. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this, the plane just ended up pitching up. Um, the crew having to manage the conduct of the flight, follow the program of in-flight checks adapted during the flight and the preparation of the following stage, which greatly increased the workload and let the crew to improvise according to the constraints encountered. Again, shouldn't have, they shouldn't have been improvising. Yeah. The decision to use a flight program developed for crews trained for test flights, which let the crew to undertake checks without knowing their aim. Again, they weren't trained on these tests. These are just standard A320 pilots. The absence of a regulatory framework in relation to non-revenue flights in the areas of air traffic management of operations and of operational aspects. So kind of not much regulation on these flights since there's no passengers. This is what they call a non-revenue yeah. flight. Not carrying passengers. Not as many regulations on it. The absence of consistency in the rinsing task in the airplane cleaning procedure, and in particular, the absence of protection of the AOA sensors uh, during rinsing with water of the airplane three days before the flight. This led to the blockage of the AOA sensors through freezing of the water that was able to penetrate inside the sensor bodies. The following factors also probably contributed to the accident. Inadequate coordination between a typical team composed of three airline pilots in the cockpit. The fatigue that may have reduced the crew's awareness of the various items of information relating to the state of the systems. You know, they weren't in clouds. They could see outside. Granted, they were low, but they should have been able to recover it. You know, they, I think, just maybe kind of got in over their heads. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what I'm reading here is like, they weren't test pilots. They were kind of trying to improvise some things, maybe became overwhelmed with things that weren't part of their normal tasks, and then just lost focus when it came to actually flying the plane. Yeah. 
the BEA recommends the following. That the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, or EASA, detail in the EU ops the various types of non-revenue flights that an operator from an EU state is authorized to perform. So this is just developing a regulatory framework for non-revenue flights in the European Union. Okay. Yeah, it's just develop a framework for regulation yeah. involving these things. Like I said, there was kind of an absence of regulation for it. So it's just dotting I's and crossing T's. Like, let's yeah, saying make like, rules hey, for this. Make yeah. sure you, you have the proper pilots. It probably also standardizes where you can do it and what kinds of airspaces, you know, what requests you need to make and mm-hmm. times a day. I bet it's all stuff that you would think is common sense that they had. They were like, we thought this was common sense before, but let's go ahead and make it <laughs> official now. Yeah, yeah. The EASA require non-revenue flights be described precisely in the approved parts of the operations manual. This description specifically determining their preparation, program, and operational framework, as well as the qualifications and training of crews. Uh, Like you said, get test pilots in there. That as a temporary measure, EASA require that such flights be subject to an authorization or declaration by the operator on a case-by-case basis. Similarly, it's not quite the same thing, but like in the United States, like let's say you have a plane that needs to be repaired, right? Like, let's say mm-hmm. you landed a plane here in Austin that needs to be repaired, but there's no one in Austin that can fix the plane. You have to go to Houston to have okay. the plane fixed. You can write to the FAA and fill out forms and get like a special permit. It's like, hey, normally you wouldn't allow this, but it's a, you know, a non-revenue flight. We're going to ferry it to Houston to get it repaired and the FAA will review it and then give you special permission, you know, like a one-time exception, you know, if it's the purpose to go have your plane fixed. So I, that's what I think. That This makes me think it's similar, where it's like, you're going to talk to the EASA, and on a case-by-case basis, they're going to give you authorization for these uh, non-revenue flights. Okay. Just better documentation. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know how aviation loves documentation <laughs> rules, Chris. <laughs> the EASA, in liaison with other regulatory authorities, ensures that in order to certify the adequacy of an item of equipment in relation to the regulatory requirements as well as the specifications defined by manufacturer, the equipment installation conditions during tests performed by equipment manufacturers are representatives of those on the airplane. That is a mouthful. That's just make sure everything's installed to the specifications of the manufacturer and that the tests are performed by representatives of either the manufacturer or the airline, I believe. Okay. The EASA undertake a safety study with a view to improving the certification standards of warning systems for crews during reconfigurations of flight control systems or the training of crews in identifying these reconfigurations and determining the immediate operational consequences. That's just better training, I think, in order to recognize, like, in this case, when the normal law protections were no longer applicable or, you know, to recognize when you're maybe pushing the limits of the protections you have available to you. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like that's come up of... Yeah, training. Yeah. It's always training. And the last one here is that the EASA, in cooperation with manufacturers, improved training exercises and techniques relating to approach to stall to ensure control of the airplane in the pitch axis. Again, better training. Uh, Those are the most dangerous times is coming into land and taking off, you know, because you're going slow Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you're low, like we said. And uh, you want to make sure that pilots know how to recover in either of those scenarios, if um, they're approaching a stall, you know, whether they're slowing down in the case of a landing or speeding up in the case of a takeoff. Yeah. The worst time to, uh, to test. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute awful. In preparation for, for getting my pilot license, that's, like, that's a lot of the training you do is recovery for those scenarios. Mm. Uh, but 
I do those in a small <laughs> single engine propeller plane. I do those tests at 3,500 feet. Uh, oh, okay. They were doing similar things at 3,000 feet in an A320, which seems crazy to me. But yeah, that's it. That is XL Airways Germany flight 888T, an unusual one. I thought this Did was interesting. Determine who, I guess, who, which of the companies was at fault? Because I guess it was the German, because it was the German pilots and the German repair cup or maintenance company, right? Right. Yeah, so, it was them. Yeah. I guess it was the German company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, yeah, whoever was performing the maintenance and did the, the the rinsing process. That was largely it. But of course, also in an ancillary manner, the airline for not having, you know, proper test pilots mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, not setting them up for success, you know, kind yeah. of setting them up. I don't want to say setting them up to fail, but not setting them up to do the best job they could yeah. have done. Not setting them up to succeed. There somewhere, you go. Somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's it. Like I said, uh, this one's super interesting to me because um, we've never really talked about, we've never really gotten in depth about like the leasing side of things and acceptance flights, non-revenue flights. And uh, it's an interesting uh, aspect of the industry. I think that maybe a lot of people don't think about. Yeah. And I, I think, I think I mentioned this to you. I don't think it was during an episode. I think I mentioned this to you the other week about how, you know, Rolls Royce manufactures a lot of airplane engines and quite often the airlines don't own those engines. Rolls Royce leases the engines yeah, to the airlines. It's crazy that like just the engine. Right. So the airline, you know, you think, you know, they've just because they've got their logo and name painted on an airplane doesn't mean that necessarily they own it. It could be belong to a holding company. The engines belong to someone else. It's a crazy amount of crossover between companies working together to make money to <laughs> keep an airplane in the air. Yeah. But that's it. Uh, XL Airways Germany Flight 888T. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm going to post that picture Chris was talking about of the angle of attack sensor. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Oh, tell tell your friends. Yeah. Tell a friend. Uh, tell your German friends or your New Zealand friends. Yeah. Or any friends. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.